You are Locked On NBA, your daily NBA podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Locked On NBA, David Locke along with Ben Golliver. Thursday edition of your daily NBA podcast. Giving you a recap on everything in 30 minutes or less. And it's free. Kind of cool. All right, Ben Golliver. We... Two things right out of the shoot. First, well, of course, polite comment. How are you? I'm doing very well. To be honest, there was so much going on last night that I really struggled to even sleep. So I'm hoping I could catch up tonight. But I was, you know, it was up until three or four o'clock writing about the Clippers falling apart. And you know, to be honest, I'm not sure I ever wound down. It was, uh, it was that kind of night. All right, I need you to. I need to. First of all, last night was really one of the great nights of the NBA, and the WNBA actually had the better moment. Like, isn't that crazy? Like, it will get no pub. But the story of the WNBA in a single elimination game, a player hitting a game-winning shot against a team that released them earlier in the year is actually the only way you can get a better storyline than the Nuggets or Bam out of Bayou. Like, that's how crazy <laughs> the night was in basketball. Well, look, we're spoiled rotten. You know, and I think we paid our dues for it, too. We had about four solid months there where you and I were just talking about literally nothing. So I think that uh, we earned this, to be honest. All right. Now, we have to make a pack here to start. We have to talk Nuggets. The easy thing to do is just to rip on the Clippers. But what the Nuggets have done is so incredible. I feel as though we need to actually talk Nuggets before we and how remarkable what they've achieved is rather than taking the easy route. So can we can we try the best to hold to just Nuggets for a few minutes here? You're going to have to rein me in. Um, I think I've been screaming about the Clippers pretty much all day long today, so this will be a nice change of pace, but there's a pretty decent chance I'm just going to flip out and start mentioning that you know Kawhi Leonard and Paul George combined to shoot one free throw in a game seven. I mean, come on. All right, so to the Nuggets – to the Nuggets. And we it, it's interesting to me, having now really watched them closely in two series, one of which I called, that two-man game is really unguardable. And frankly, you have to decide, you're either letting Jamal Murray get the off-the-bounce threes he got all series long against the Jazz, or if you're going to double-team Jamal Murray, then you're allowing Nikola Jokic to just conduct in the middle of the floor and some of the passes he made, the one to Gary Harris and the one to Paul Millsap on nearly back-to-back possessions, which were the game-breakers, like, those are just... We don't have players who can do that. And then your other choice is you just switch, but then inevitably you have someone guarding at six-something that's guarding a seven-footer. Like, it's really an incredibly unguardable two-man game. It is when it's working, right? And I think part of the issue for them within this series is that they went cold at times and the Clippers looked like they had kind of figured Murray out a little bit early in that series. And yet when it mattered, when the pressure was on, when you would think that the younger guys who aren't as experienced, who don't have as many playoff reps and all that stuff, you would think that those guys would be the first ones to crumble. And it was exactly the opposite. I mean, they were almost on a different planet. I mean, they, I felt like they could have executed their two-man game with their eyes closed down the stretch. I mean, Murray going off for 40 another gigantic scoring explosion. Jokic, I almost felt like rubbing it in a little bit with the late two-hand over-the-head pass that wound up, you know, drawing kind of a hard foul on his teammate given the, uh, the time score situation when he unleashed that one. But, yeah, they were, they were completely in the groove, uh, to put it mildly. And, frankly, they did that night after night. I mean, it was really three games in a row 
where they completely ran the Clippers off the court. I think you and I were on the same same wavelength last night, adding it all up. But I think uh, Denver was plus 35 uh, over the 36 minutes that the, the last three fourth quarters, which is just a ridiculous point differential. And you know, we could definitely point to some reasons why the Clippers were falling apart, but. The Nuggets formula was not complicated. You know, ride the two guys who got you there in the first place. Ride the two guys who I think are going to be looking at uh, potentially, you know, all NBA consideration here going forward for the foreseeable future. And uh, this is a great moment for them. You could see their pure joy after the Game 7 victory. They couldn't wipe the smiles off their face. They had that gigantic uh, celebration in the team locker room, which you could hear from 100 or 150 feet away in that empty arena. Uh, It was a special time for them. It's definitely their night. Jokic. What have we not realized about him? What is he proving to us now that we didn't know beforehand? Well, I think he's just differentiating himself from some of the other big guys who have struggled to really make an impact in the playoffs, right? I think that we've looked, uh, whether you want to talk about Embiid, who you know at times just looked gassed and, and run off the court by the Boston Celtics. You could even throw guys like Lopez and, and Giannis into this conversation where you know Giannis, because he's a non-shooter, uh, a Lopez because he's got to drop all the time and, and, and he can't really extend his defense and all that kind of stuff where, you know, a lot of these centers who we valued a lot were either played off the court, um, you know, during the playoffs or they never made the playoffs in the first place in, in the case of a Carl Anthony Towns. I mean, to me, I think what Jokic has done here over the last couple of weeks is solidify something that I already thought. I, to me, he's the best center in basketball. I've thought that for a while now, you know, going on at least a year and I think he's also putting himself in a conversation that is the best passer in basketball. You know, it's, it's him, it's LeBron. If you want to put Harden, I don't know who else you would want to put in that conversation. It's not a very long list. Uh, his creativity and how well they cut off him, it just, you know, it's mutually beneficial. It makes him look good because his teammates stay involved and he makes them look good by setting them up with, uh, with great passes. So uh, to me, it was just kind of a tour de force game seven. He really brought it strong. He was easily the best player on the court to me, you know, easily surpassing outplaying Kawhi Leonard. I'm not sure very many people would have predicted that before the series started, that that's how that was going to go down. And so I I think that we're getting confirmation that he's a a big-time postseason player. We saw that uh, throughout last year's playoffs as well. And we're also getting confirmation that, uh, you know, he is just a really tricky guy to cover. He poses, I think, more matchup issues as a center than any other center in basketball, even though he's not one of these guys who stretches out to 30 feet and, and, and you know, opens up room for his teammates that way. You know what's interesting about what you just said? You listed the best passers in the game. LeBron James, James Harden, probably Chris Paul deserves to be in that conversation, Luka Doncic, Nikola Jokic, right? Nikola Jokic, right? Is that is that our five? Like, Am I missing anyone? I think some people might want to throw Trey Young in, but otherwise I think you're pretty good. And I actually think Trey Young, from some of the data research I've done, Trey Young has this incredible number in there, which is his amount of passes he gave to people inside the restricted area. And, and this is actually some da- work I did earlier this year, and quite honestly it had to do with, like, why is Rudy Gobert not getting more dunks and things like that. What's interesting about this group that we just have talked about, Jokic is seven feet tall. Harden's what six 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 five, LeBron's six eight, Luca's six eight, um, and Chris Paul and Trey Young are the only six one. Like the best passers in the league are now six six or above, and I actually think there's something to it. Like 
they're passing windows and angles in a game where length has become so, and athleticism has become so important, are actually different than a traditional point guard passing windows. Well, for sure. I mean, think about how many passes Jokic makes, like from his head or above, that are on a downward trajectory to a guy's waist that he can convert for a quick layup, right? I mean, those are passes that a Chris Paul, as brilliant of a player as he is, he just can't make that same pass unless he's jumping up in the air and flinging it down, right? I mean, it's just a matter of uh, of angles and height. So, yeah, I mean, don't they talk about this in, in football too? Like, are, can you see over the defensive line? It makes things a little bit easier for quarterbacks. Um, you know, I, I think there's definitely something to that. And also just comfort with the ball. I think ball handling is really important too. You know, we've seen this from Bam Adebayo from the heat where he's gotten a lot of credit for his passing ability from that high post. And they run a lot of cutters and, and, you know, guys off screens to use him from the high post to me, where he gets in trouble though, is that his handle uh, will get him into situations where you can dive on him, force turnovers and, and kind of muck up their offense just a little bit. Whereas with Jokic, I think he's got a pretty darn good handle too. He's worked on that as well. It's not like he's out there, Allen Iverson crossing people over, but he brings the ball up the court every once in a while. He can get himself to his spots. He can back people down with the dribble and get to himself, you know, get himself not only to a place where he can score from, but to a place where he can really operate from and pass from. So, uh, you know, for sure, it's the total package on offense for him. All right, so let's go big picture for just one quick section. How did they do this? How did they come back from three-one back-to-back times? Well, I think part of it is just they didn't have to go on the road. I mean, to me, that's a big part of it, right? I think that we would see more uh, series play out like this if they were on neutral site with no crowd and with, you know, friendly shooting gyms and with no travel. So I do think the circumstances played a part of it. Um, I also think if you look where the the break happened in their previous, uh, uh, you know, round, that probably played to their benefit to some degree. But I think that we got to put a lot of this on the Clippers. As, As solid and steady as Denver was, the Clippers weren't. All right. There's just really no way you can talk around you can talk around that. We'll get to the Clippers in a second. I'm staying nuggets for a second. I have a question for you that I think is a crazy concept. Had George Hill not convinced the entire Milwaukee Bucks locker room to have a boycott, and Gary Harris then doesn't play game six of the Jazz Nuggets series, did the Jazz win that series? It's very possible. I mean, he's been a big-time game-changer. I think that when he was shooting the ball late, that was sort of the straw that broke the back for the Clippers, right? It's like, look, we expect to uh, you know, get punished by Jokic. We expect Murray to go off every once in a while. And you know, the guys who are kind of hanging out in the corners, they might hit a shot every once in a while. We can kind of live with all that. But if Gary Harris is out there, you know, finally you know, getting his shot going, it's like, all right, well, kind of forget about it. And the shoulders start to slump and the fingers start to point for sure. Um, No, I'm with you. That's kind of what I meant with the timing of the shutdown in that first series. Um, It's a factor that has to be mentioned when you're looking at, uh, you know, Denver's comeback. But, you know, more than anything, it's just the the mental, uh, you know, stick-to-itiveness, you know, not to be like some old-school, middle-school coach, but I think a lot of this bubble playoffs has really come down to which teams want to be here and which teams are kind of okay with going home. And there was no question watching the Clippers last night in their post-game press conferences. Like, they were sad. But I don't think that they were, like, dreading this idea that they had been kicked out of the bubble and that they had fallen short of expectations and all of that. I mean, some of them look relieved. Lou Williams was talking about, hey, it's been 68 days since I've seen my daughters. He knew the number, uh, you know, down exactly, and he was looking forward to, you know, reconnecting with them. And some of these other teams are maybe a little bit younger with a little bit more to prove, whether it's Boston, Miami, Denver. They've all settled in here really comfortably. They seem like they want to be here. And the idea of, you know, winning and sticking around for another two weeks doesn't so, uh, sound so bad to them. 
they're out there trying to make kind of their names and their reputation in a very challenging environment, and they're good with it. So uh, I do think that's been a big factor here. There's been a number of teams to me that have been okay with going home, whether it was the Clippers, the Milwaukee Bucks, uh, the Philadelphia 76ers, and the list goes on. He is Ben Golliver, Washington Post, In the Bubble. I'm David Locke. This is Locked on NBA, your daily podcast on the NBA, recapping all the last night's actions, giving you the hot stories in 30 minutes every day. This today's show is brought to you by rockauto.com. Rock Auto's catalog is unique, remarkably easy to navigate, even a little old schooly. As you can quickly see all the parts available for your vehicle, choose the brands and specifications and prices you prefer. Best of all, prices at rockauto.com are always reliably low. They're the same for professionals as they are for do-it-yourselfers. So why spend up to twice as much on your auto parts? In fact, one of our lockdown hosts was having fun the other day with Rock Auto and literally went on the site and like started putting in like Pinto 1973 trying to see whether they have parts for it, and they hit on everything. That's how incredible a selection Rock Auto has. Plus, you get reliably low prices and all the parts your car will ever need. So it's rockauto.com, a family-run business, helping auto parts customers for 20 years. Go to rockauto.com right now, see all the parts available for your car or truck, and write Locked On in the How Did You Hear About Us section box. That's Locked On in the How Did You Hear About Us section box. So you know we sent you. Before we get more with Ben Golliver, I want to thank all the Locked On listeners. We've had an incredible run here. Uh, we have set the record for daily listens on the podcast network for five of the last six days. Um, and I just, Whoa. it's incredible. I, we just keep one after another, after another, after another. I just, Never in our network history have we been hitting these numbers. And so I just want to thank everyone who listens. Uh, as the founder and CEO of the network, I do want to take a second. Our host battled for five months, as Ben said earlier, of kind of talking about nothing and, and, create, and giving creativity to um, everything. And I, I just want to thank them, as uh, you for listening, and our hosts uh, for the amazing work they've done to, to catapult the network to where it is. So I want to, I want to give out that that those props and thanks so yeah five of the last six days uh and i actually haven't as we record this i don't know wednesday's numbers uh started last tuesday after labor day and we've just beat it every day except for friday and actually friday was our largest friday of all time so it's been a it's been a fun little run for us all right i tweeted out yesterday we needed 24 hours to just talk about the nuggets we've passed that we did the whole first segment on the nuggets now let's talk about the Clippers. I'm going to bring up the dirty little ugly story we had all year long. We can't get into specifics, but Ben Golliver, you and I are in the same circles. There are murmurs that go around our league that you can't always totally report on. And one of them for a long time was that Kyrie Irving wanted out of Cleveland, right? We knew that, and then it happened. Like, there's been discussion all year long about lack of cohesion with the Clippers. Is that what happened? For sure, Oh, yeah. I mean, I think that they even came out there and admitted it. I mean, Lou Williams said it simply. We had the talent to win a championship. We didn't have the chemistry. I think you heard Paul George say that he was still trying to kind of feel his way through his relationship with Kawhi Leonard. And to me, a lot of everything that, that they're dealing with kind of behind the scenes, a lot of it goes back to Kawhi. This organization catered to him like very few organizations ever cater to superstar players. It's very similar to what Houston does with James Harden the Lakers and the Cavaliers and the Heat did with LeBron James. They built the whole thing around him. They let him do whatever he wanted. You know, they, they bought him a million backpacks to hand out to, uh, you know, school children. I mean, it, the whole thing was built around him, including 
you know, the extensive load management set up and, and letting him take an hour, an hour and a half to speak with the media after games, all of it. And he's obviously a hard guy to reach. And his teammates, you know, have said that, hey, he's kind of funny behind the scenes and everything else. But when they needed a vocal leader in the playoffs, when they needed a guy to be uh, rested and fresh in the fourth quarter of a game seven to put that thing away, Kawhi Leonard wasn't there. He was settling for mid-range jump shots, not even particularly good shots. He wasn't hitting them. He wasn't orchestrating on defense. Uh, he wasn't, uh, you know, gathering the troops or any of that stuff. And I think that a, a part of it is just, you know, personality. I think you had two distinct groups within this team, right? You had the guys who had been there previously, Patrick Beverly, Lou Williams, and Montrez Harrell, who all had to sacrifice in one way or another to make room for Paul George and Kawhi Leonard. And the other group was, you know, Paul George and Kawhi Leonard. And if those two guys had been as strong together on and off the court as like LeBron James and Anthony Davis, they probably could have made this thing mesh. But I think that there was still a little bit of friction between Paul George and Kawhi Leonard about exactly how are they going to play together. I think you saw a lot in game seven of my turn, your turn type, type stuff. Not that it was antagonistic, but it just wasn't smooth and free flowing. You throw on top, you know, the funerals that Montrez Harrell and Lou Williams had to go to during the bubble, the Magic City Circus. You throw on top Patrick Beverly's calf injury, which is forcing them to play. You know, Reggie Jackson and, and Joakim Noah has to step in for Montrez Harrell. I mean, this was just not the group that we expected. This wasn't the, the Clippers consistently with their best players getting a lot of shared reps together. You know, Doc Rivers said it. Denver knew exactly who they were in those late-game moments, where they wanted to go. They, they had spent more time together with their groups. The Clippers just had it, and it showed. And one argument we could make, Locke, is that if Denver didn't expose them here, if they didn't come back and win this series, is it possible that Western Conference Finals could have gotten pretty ugly for the Clippers, uh, you know, given how well the Lakers are functioning together, given how high of a level their defense is playing, and given how well LeBron's playing right now? Uh, you know, we all thought that was going to be this amazing showdown. I certainly did. But after watching, you know, games five, six, and seven, I kind of wonder, did Denver do the Clippers a favor? So we all have revisionist history now to what we know because we've seen it fail. But let's go back to some of our analysis of what we had. Like we, the Clippers were built as a, as the ultimate team. We all thought it was championship. They built that team together. There, there are two aspects that now I'm hearing from people. And and what can we learn about team building? One is that the two superstars didn't complement each other. Kawhi Leonard did nothing to make Paul George better, and Paul George did nothing to get Kawhi Leonard better. In contrast to Anthony Davis and. LeBron James. In fact, David Ramil and Wes Goldberg made this point really well Tuesday on Locked on NBA, and then I had an NBA coach text that to me last night. So that's one aspect of it. Did we misdiagnose just putting superstars together and how they play as being maybe easier than we thought it was? Yeah, we might have cut to the, the chase a little bit on that. I do want to point out, though, when the Clippers did have it together, when they did have all their guys kind of healthy and playing well, when they reached their ceiling – their ceiling was really, really freaking high. I mean, they put up 154 points in a playoff game against the Dallas Mavericks, right? I mean, they ran that team off the court, and that was right before the shutdown as well. They had great momentum at that point. And, you know, then there was reporting, hey, did the Clippers actually want to leave the, uh, the bubble during the shutdown? So that added another layer of kind of intrigue to what's going on with them internally. Uh, but to me, I think the misdiagnosis was that I fell in love with their ceiling rather than their baseline, right? their baseline was much shakier. You know, they, they were a volatile team. They weren't as volatile as Houston where they're going all the way up and then all the way down almost you know nightly based on how well Russell Westbrook is playing. But the Clippers had plenty of stinkers throughout the regular season where they didn't pull it together. 
but they were able to kind of tease you along with how well they did play. And, you know, in terms of the relationship between Paul George and Kawhi Leonard, the Clippers reached their peak when Kawhi went into takeover mode in fourth quarters. I mean, there was a bunch of fourth quarters where he scored 15, 20 points, getting to his spots, looking spry, you know, dunking, you know, leaping high off the, uh, the ground and everything else. And that version of Kawhi just did not show up late in the Denver series. And I don't know if that's health related. I don't know if it's a, a focus issue. I don't know, motivation. I mean, whatever you want to call it, conditioning, I think Doc Rivers mentioned. I'm not sure what you want to attribute that to. Uh, but I think a lot of the responsibility for the Clippers falling short of their expectations and, and not being able to capture the heights of their play does fall on Kawhi Leonard's shoulders. It's interesting. You're really putting on Kawhi. And I'm sitting here looking at Paul George's last five playoffs, and it's first-round exit, first-round exit, first-round exit, first-round exit, second-round exit, and a dramatic upset. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, look, I mean, anytime you're shooting a a three-pointer off the side of the glass, you're going to bear some responsibility, too. But I think for Paul George, from day one, he viewed himself as the number two guy with the Clippers, right? It was very much like when he first got to Oklahoma City and he was deferring to Westbrook. Now, that relationship evolved in, over the course of the second year, and Paul George steps forward, and he winds up getting a little bit more of the uh, the blame the second time through when they lose to Portland, right? But I think on this one, you know, Kawhi Leonard skates blame a lot because he never says anything in the media. He's like the one guy on the Clippers who isn't yapping, right? I mean, Patrick Beverly, Montrez Harrell, Paul George, they all had incidents where they were kind of talking, whether it was to Damian Lillard, Luka Doncic, Nikola Jokic. I mean, these guys are constantly getting into stuff, and Kawhi never says anything. And I think that, you know, winds up, you know, creating this kind of myth around him, like he's this completely reliable late-game player, and, uh, you know, he's just so solid and steady. He was not good enough in this series, especially late in the series. And and there were problems all throughout the bubble. You go back to their first game against the Lakers. He's afraid to shoot with LeBron James defending him. So he passes out to Paul George with a couple seconds left and they get a terrible shot in that game. He doesn't defend Devin Booker properly. He he just retreats rather than doubling on Devin Booker in the closing seconds. Devin Booker hits a game winner. He allows a really soft switch onto Luka Doncic. So Luka can go one-on-one against Reggie Jackson their worst defensive player on the court rather than Kawhi Leonard, who had been lined up with him to start. There was just a number of situations where he made either brain farts or just flat out mistakes in late game situations. And I think that that came home to roost, uh, you know, down the, the, the course of this series. I just don't think you're, you're telling me ever log in a game seven, LeBron and Anthony Davis with their season on the line, there's no possible way they play 82 combined minutes and only take one free throw. And Kawhi Leonard didn't take a single one. LeBron is never going out in a game seven without at least a single free throw. That is just impossible. And unfortunately that's the standard we've got to hold Kawhi to because he's the reigning finals MVP because he's won two titles. And because all season long, he's been in this conversation with LeBron as the best player in basketball right now. He just didn't show it. All right. One other little dirty secret that has to be discussed in this conversation. And then we've got to get to that Boston Miami game and the bam out of Bayou Block. Today's show is brought to you by Built Bar. I should have sent you Built Bars in the bubble. I feel really bad, Ben. Do you think I still have time? Yeah, you keep you keep saying that, Locke. What's going on with that? You I should have. Empty promises. I don't know. Well, I mean, you're doing all your walks and stuff, and you need these unbelievably <laughs> healthy, ridiculous, delicious Built Bars. The 100% chocolate I, on the outside with the uh, with the humidity, Mike. But you you'd keep them nicely refrigerated, I'm sure, in your little in your little capsule you've been living inside of. Uh, the Built Bar is, here's the thing about Built Bar. Like, I don't want to use names, but let's use the leading men's protein bar. Probably the one that you have 30 of them in with you right now. 
Built Bar has 120 less calories, three and a half grams less fat, 34 grams less carbs, 17 grams of fewer sugar, sugar grams, same amount of fiber and seven grams more protein. And they taste great. BuiltBar.com. How much longer are you in that bubble, Ben? At about another month. Oh, we can probably get them to you. Text me the address. We'll send you Built Bars. I will. We love oh, you, Ben. I will gladly do it. I mean, I have to listen to you read this every single week. And every week it makes me hungry, man. It's not fair. Do you have an allergy? You don't have a nut allergy or anything, right? No, not at all. Not at all. All right, so you're not like me. So I can just, I'm just going to send you... The, like, mixed box with all the different flavors. And then you can figure out which one's the best. And if you use the promo code Locked On, I'll get $10 off. That's $10 off. Whenever you use the promo code Locked On and Ben, can I tell you a little secret? I send them to you. You like them. You use the promo code Locked On. So a second time still works. Still works. Second time. Not just first-time users. Kind of cool. That's at BuiltBar.com. Check them out. The best bars around. Delicious. You're, they like to say, you won't believe your mouth. Think about that for a second. It's BuiltBar.com. All right. We all love him. He's the best quote in town. He's incredible. He's also lost like five series while up 3-2 and three series while up 3-1. How much is this on Doc Rivers? I definitely think it's on Doc Rivers. I mean, it was just confusing what he was pointing to as the excuses and this idea of conditioning being what bites them when they spent the entire year load managing and telling us about their health and medical program and everything else, it just makes no sense. I don't know if he wanted to use that as an excuse to kind of keep it away from, you know, the choke conversation, which I know the Clippers are very, very sensitive to, um, or this idea that maybe they weren't mentally ready or they were fried. I'm not sure if if that's where he was going with the, uh, you know, with the physical excuse making or what, but um, he had no answers. They could not uh, take uh, control of the game of the momentum as it was shifting, I think a lot of people felt like Michael Malone outcoached him in this series. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I actually came away from this series wondering, number one, how pissed off is Steve Ballmer? Like on a scale of one to 10, is it like a 70 or is it like a 300, right? And then would that mean someone's got to pay for it? Or there's got to be some level of accountability. Now, I'm not sure it's going to get there uh, because this is year one for this group together. But, you know, whenever there's this big debate, was it championship or bust or not that Paul George is trying to put out there, it was definitely championship or bust, especially from the ownership's viewpoint, given how much they traded to get Paul George. And uh, you know, there's going to have to be accountability sooner rather than later. It was championship or bust. They, w- they would have liked Paul George to have more field goals than um, draft picks they gave up in game seven. Um, all right. Bam out of Bayou's block. All right, actually, we'll get to Bam's block. I-, I have a question on this that I, like – I'm watching that game the other day. I am wowed by Boston. Like, they're so great. Gordon Hayward, who I watched every day become an all-star and carry the Jazz along with Rudy Gobert to a second round of the playoffs, is their fifth best player. Like, he's great. And if he was playing right now, he would be their fifth best player. They're so good. How did they lose? Like, I'm watching that game... The whole game, I'm like, oh my God, Boston's unbelievable. You have no defensive weaknesses. They can switch one through five. They're just, every bench player fits perfectly. Watermaker's hands are amazing. Boy, is he strong. And I keep, and I, I keep looking up, and then what happens? But like, two-point game. Two point, like, how did they lose? Well, I mean, I think a lot of the same things that you said about Boston can be said about Miami. I mean, super steady, lots of scoring options. I think the painful part for Boston 
is that they got the Marcus Smart goes nuts from three-point game. And in the, in the Raptors series, when they got that one, they won it. And here, they lost it. And you usually can only count on about one of those per series. You really don't want to lose that game when Marcus Smart goes nuts. I think the late-game offense has been something people have circled for Boston, and it's really dri- dri- driven me crazy. You know, Jason Tatum, uh, he falls in love a little bit with the hero shots late. I don't know if it's because he gets tired or if because he feels like he can kind of get that shot and he just trusts it. But he missed his final seven field goals of that game. Um, now, obviously, one was a dunk and one was a three-pointer at the very end of overtime. But still, there was a bunch of wasted possession, settled situations, late in regulation, which was a problem. The other issue they have is Kemba Walker. He struggles to create really good looks. Uh, when the game grinds down in the closing minutes, it's a lot of contested mid-range or pull-up or, or even sometimes turnovers or, you know, pump fakes and he can't go anywhere. Um, and they just wind up getting into a little bit of, of isolation-heavy stuff that's just not really paying dividends for them late in the games. Uh, meanwhile, you've got Jimmy Butler, who just never stops coming. I mean, he's always going to be, uh, you know, steady late in those games. He was the one who scored the go-ahead basket, got the end one by kind of powering through Tatum. And that's a, uh, an advantage we knew Milwaukee, or sorry, Miami would have coming in. It's just his physical strength on the ball, his ability to get to the free throw line. Um, and then, uh, you know, it's just dedicated, you know, team defense and, and principles and not giving up. You know, I think Miami was just really focused and they have been the whole way. I mean, I, I think that their mental uh, approach, it kind of sometimes it gets written off. Oh, it's heat culture. And everybody focuses on this idea of, oh, they all, just work out like mad to try to get the absolute most uh, ability out of their, uh, you know, uh, out of their games, right? Like they're overachievers. But there's a lot of really smart guys on that team who are really focused and they play for each other. And, and that shouldn't get understated uh, either. And I think ultimately that's why they wound up, you know, winning that one in overtime by the skin of their teeth. Uh, from a standpoint of team building, we watched Denver, big picture here for a second to wrap this up today. We watched Denver. That's a that's a kind of homegrown team without the superstar. We watched the Clippers try to put all their t- players together and, and then have no chemistry. We're watching what I think is just these teams, the way they were flying around last night, this elite athleticism by Miami and, and Boston at so many positions. What are we learning about team building here moving forward? Well, I think that uh, it helps when you've got balance. I mean, I think sometimes when you don't have that, you know, that need to have a very, very clear pecking order. Like Jimmy Butler said, hey, I want to have the ball in late-game situations sometimes, but if Goran has it going or Duncan Robinson's hot or Tyler Hero, you know, who was really going in game one, if he has it going, it's not a situation where you have to defer and cater to your, your biggest ego player. And I think, you know, in the bubble, it's really a mental test. It's a test of your team's chemistry and camaraderie. And so it doesn't necessarily surprise me that some of these teams that, you know, take a more balanced approach and try to keep everybody involved and satisfied are the teams that are wind up having a lot of success here. I think it should also be pointed out. I mean, Miami and Denver took a while to pull this thing together, right? I mean, Miami, we really haven't heard from them since LeBron left. I mean, there was a couple of pretty dark years there. Um, They they hit the big, uh, you know, home run in in the draft, getting bam. And then uh, they make the big play for, for Jimmy as well. But um, that was a pretty mediocre team for the last five years. And for Denver before last season, they were always knocking on the door, but just kind of consistently letting people down and, and really kind of drifting and aimless, changing coaches and all that. So I think that uh, patience is really important, you know, and I think that's something that Denver has stressed, but also Miami too. They've ridden the entire roller coaster down there with Miami. They've had multiple championship eras. They've had some others uh, that didn't go quite so well and were more lottery based uh, 
know, time periods, but they've stuck to their principles. They haven't fired Spolstra. They, they know exactly what kind of players they're targeting from a personality standpoint. They find those guys and then they let their coach do his job. And I, I think that's important too. And similar deal for Mike Malone. Look, he faced some pressure these last couple of years um, at various points. Was he going to get fired? You know, they barely missed the playoffs one year. He's on the hot seat. They stuck with him. They believed in him. And I think that, uh, that winds up mattering too. I do think if you're a team that doesn't have the luxury of being in, you know, Los Angeles or New York or, you know, one of these very premier markets, like stability is really important. Foundational values are important. And, uh, you know, if you bide your time, you can pull it together. Ben Golliver, Washington Post. Keep reading his stuff. Go get him on Twitter at, at Ben Golliver. Subscribe to his newsletter. He's got a book coming out about the bubble soon enough. You can pre-order it at Barnes & Noble. He's Ben Golliver. I'm sending him built bars. I'm David Locke. Have a great day. Thanks very much for tuning in. Friday, Anthony and Adam, host of Locked on Nuggets, could be unbearable. That's it. That's right. Our Friday show on Locked on NBA is the Western Conference final matchup of Anthony Irwin and Adam Matas. That should be kind of fun to watch. Thanks very much for tuning in today. Have a wonderful day.